Welcome once again to By Grace Community Church. We are thrilled that you are here to worship with us this morning. If you have your Bible with you, I invite you up, open, invite you to open up to the book of Galatians chapter 2. As always, we're engaged in sermon series where we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. Today we continue that journey in verses 1 through 10. And this is God's word, and we should all hear it and receive it as such. Galatians 2, beginning in verse 1. And then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who is with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission, even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter... For his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor very thing I was eager to do. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we gather here today, we do so in your name because of your work and willingness, because of your goodness and wisdom and power. Come, come, O oh Lord, and give us eyes that we might see you and what you're up to. God, that we might hear with new ears that you have given your voice to discern it from all other sounds. And Father, we ask that you would give us repentant faith, that we would trust you, that, that the union we have with you would overcome all obstacles in us and around us, that we might know you personally, particularly, and that we might grow in the grace that you have given. Do that today, we ask, O oh Lord, for the sake of your Son, and it's in his name we ask, and all God's people agree. Amen. We've been agreeing a lot this morning, amen? amen? It's good. It is good to be back in Galatians. It is good for us 
to have spent a little bit of time in Acts so that we might understand a few key historical moments and that through that understanding, we would have the background necessary to listen to Paul's testimony. This is a testimony about the power of God. It's a testimony about the mercies of God. It's a testimony about all that we have in our union with God by Christ. So when we read in verse 1, the audience knows the events of these 14 years. They know because Paul has taught them. He has lived with them for a few years. He labored in preaching and teaching together in public, in their private homes. So when Paul speaks to going up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, that Titus came along with him, He's speaking about the ministry going to the Gentiles through his calling as an apostle. He doesn't go to Jerusalem to get authorized. He didn't go to Jerusalem to get a degree or a certificate that he was otherwise lacking. He went because there was a war machine grinding out propaganda to undermine not just him. I think Paul would suffer that quietly, even gladly. But that in undermining him, it was hurting the church. It was confusing the people of God. And it was changing and thereby negating the good news of what has happened in their generation. So he goes to Jerusalem so that his naysayers and detractors will be silenced and their lies exposed and their treachery against God and against his people destroyed. Those are pretty big words, yes? That's the purpose why he went. Listen to verse two. Paul says he went because of a revelation and he set before them for their examining. He did this privately before those who seemed influential because the gospel that he proclaimed among the Gentiles he wanted seen, touched, pulled apart, evaluated, commended. Now it's interesting because there are times where we see verse 2 and we think, is Paul wondering if he's really run his race in vain? Is this a moment of crisis? Is the the influence of the Judaizers infecting Paul? No, that's not what's happening. Paul is going there, laying the gospel out so that the propaganda against him will be silenced. Paul's not doubting the gospel. Paul is doing what needs to be done 
so that they have no ground to accuse him based on. So this phrase, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain, is probably a line from his detractors. This is probably an accusation specifically given by those who seek to change the gospel of grace and freedom to the slavery of a works-based and thoroughly inadequate righteousness, which is really not righteous at all. So, Paul goes, he meets, they explore and inspect, he hides nothing from them, and he even brings someone who will have to make the personal decision about who they are and what they believe. He brings Titus, who is a Greek, pure Gentile, no half Jew anywhere. And he brings Titus so that Titus can hear the best or worst arguments of the Judaizers. He can hear Paul and Peter and others explain the gospel, articulate the gospel, and then make his decision. Does he need to become a Jew in order to have faith and exercise Christian obedience as a Greek, as a Gentile, as an outsider. Imagine being Titus just for a moment. And there's this crazy guy who keeps getting shipwrecked and beaten, who keeps getting in shouting matches and, and intellectual debates and goes house to house praying for people, is doing ministry in the living room, is doing ministry in the marketplace. And at some point, the Holy Spirit of heaven comes and works faith in your heart. You repent and believe and you grab hold of the promised Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth in the land of Galilee, which is not that far. Jesus has walked the earth so near. Beat Titus walking in the land of Galilee on his way to Jerusalem to go to the temple of God that he would worship with the people of God. Remembering and learning story after story after story about the life of Christ and the death of Christ and the movement of Christ. And then tying all those things to the ancient stories of Abraham and Isaac, Jacob and Esau, Moses, David, the prophets. Do you ever get intimidated by trying to think through all that is right here? I know it's unfair. It's a bigger version than the one you have. Be Titus. Paul picked me. How many Greeks were there to be chosen from among all these churches in the lands of Galatia? And he takes you that you will choose whom you will serve. You will choose what you believe. 
And Titus trusts Christ alone. He will add nothing to his faith in order to have peace with God. I really appreciate the way Paul words this in verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. In other words, Paul is bringing Titus as a true and honest test case for how the Gentiles are to be welcomed and understood. What partiality persists? That's the question. Do I need to be a faithful Jew in order to be a faithful Christian? One plan of redemption. What does it mean to have Christ, to hold Christ, to love Christ, to serve and worship Jesus Christ as God? Titus is a test case because despite all the urging, despite all the time and patience exercised that he would find out, study, explore, What is true? We live in a day and age that has such a low bar to use the word true. So much is subjective. Is it true that there is one God? Well, that might be your truth, not my truth we hear. I'm sorry, there's one world, unless there are multiple universes, and I'm alone in this one, there's one truth. There's one way that it is. One, is Jesus Christ with God the Father in heaven right now? That's a question of fact. Certainly faith enters in, but on the face value, it's a question of fact. Either Jesus Christ is with God the Father and he will one day return or he's not. If it's all myth, then why would I say, well, that's your truth? It can't be your truth if, my, if it's different than that truth. There's one truth. Many perceptions, perhaps. One truth. Is Buddha right? Is Confucius right? Is Martin Luther right? Is Paul right? Is Jesus right? When they say contradictory things, who's right? When we say that truth is relative, we lose the security and the significance of comfort that God knows us and that we know him. Titus had to make a choice. And because of God's grace, he was empowered 
to believe. And that belief is based solely on the work of God as he receives it. Not according to what he's done or what he wants, but he wants what he ought to want because God empowered him to do so. That's the test case. Titus, hearing all the arguments, is not compelled. Their words are not enough. Their imploring is not enough. He loves Christ, and he will not filthy the gospel with yet more mankind's failure. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our best is not enough. Our very best filthy rags. So when we begin to understand what's happening here in Galatians 2, and we listen to Paul's summary of Titus's experience, it seems at times to be drippingly removed of emotion, removed of tension, removed, because we know how it resolves. We know what Titus does. So often, it, it leaves us moving forward before we really consider what this was like for him, what the stakes are in these moments. What if the Jerusalem church got it wrong? What if the testimony was lost? What if Paul doesn't have thunder and humility? Well, there isn't a world that would be made where that would happen. Because God is with his people. So in your darkest moment, when your doubts rise the greatest, trust the truth of the gospel. Find your comfort, not in man's ability, but in God's ability. Find your salvation, not in what you do, but what God in Christ has done. Remembering the theme for the entire book of Galatians, that the gospel is not about what you do for God. The one true gospel is about what God has done for us. The law and the prophets are the shadow. Christ, the substance. True liberty then is obtained only when we unreservedly depend upon the grace of God for our salvation. There are many ways we should reserve ourselves and bridle. Bridle decisions, bridle our speech. But the area that you should never bridle is your pursuit of truth in Christ. True liberty, true freedom, it is obtained only in giving and depending upon the grace of God, receiving and resting on the grace of God for all good things, chief among them, salvation. And this liberty 
Paul's telling us, is possessed by all Christians. You cannot be a Christian and lack this liberty. You cannot be a Christian and somehow miss the mark, lose the privilege of your salvation. Because what you did didn't save you. How does what you do unsave you? If God wrote your name in the book of life before there was time and space and matter, what kind of eraser do you have? So Titus is faced with the dilemma that all of us are faced with, but Christ is at work. He gave his spirit to testify. So when we read that Titus was not compelled or required to be circumcised, it's another way of saying the expectation is not that you will submit to the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. Instead, the gospel itself shows no partiality. Jacob did such a great job last week of outlining and illustrating this idea for us. There is no partiality because we are all the same in Christ. We have all the same in Christ. So we continue. Titus is there. He's not compelled to be circumcised. Despite his status as an outsider, Christ has brought him in. And here's the dilemma. Here's the difficulty in following. Verse 4, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. False brothers? Machen says that's not a pleasant term. Right? It's not a pleasant term. We like true brothers. How many of you know true brothers who ride or die with you through thick and thin? Who stand when others run? Who stay when others leave? Who join? When most flee, true brothers. False brothers sounds harsh. It sounds impolite. Machen goes on to say this whole business is not a pleasant thing. And we have a culture obsessed with pleasant. Don't we? Don't be negative. Just be positive. Just think positive. Think about good. Don't, don't talk about bad. There's enough bad in the world. Yeah, because we cause it. But when we see Paul talk about false brothers, he doesn't mean they're false humans. He doesn't mean they don't walk into church he means that they are proclaiming a false message. What is it that makes them false? 
They are false brothers because their message is false. And Paul speaks now to their motive, to their purpose, calling that false as well. Why are they here? Paul uses the language of espionage. Love that word. There are two kinds of movies that I love the most. Heist movies, because, you know, awesome. But also espionage, spies. When I was a kid, I was pretty sure that uh, between those two realities, I was going to have a better chance at uh, heisting than I was espionage. I'm fairly noticeable. So being a spy was kind of right out, but strategizing and planning and predicting human behavior, I I thought maybe I'd have a shot there until the Lord got a hold of me and I realized, you know, wrong. (laughs) You can't even get past the eighth commandment, right? Theft is stealing. It's wrong. But there is a war machine attacking the church. And when we hear that, it is easy to think about Nero and the Romans and the government. It is harder to recognize the condition of a heart when they walk into a church. But this is a spy network. There are decisions being made behind the scenes to undermine truth, to deny the claims of Christ, to to show Paul to be false, though he is not false. He's true. They're false. I've said before in our time together that the book of Galatians has in church history been called the Magna Carta of Christian liberty, the great charter of Christian freedom. These men are infiltrating and spying and creating and dismissing and and handing out all of the propaganda that would undercut and remove all that you love to sing about. All that comes up on these screens that we lend our voices to herald If we do not have freedom in Christ, then there's no freedom to be found. So they slip in to spy, not to watch, but to destroy. To spy out our freedom. What kind of freedom? The full freemen we have in Christ Jesus. Why? So that they can return us to slavery. They want to wrap the people of God in chains. Slavery in all its forms is evil. It's not just problematic. It's not just what we tend to do to one another, you know, kind of in almost any society. Slavery is evil and must be eradicated from the face of God's 
earth. And if you look at history, Christianity is usually the reason. The message of the gospel is almost always the basis by which the evil of slavery is eradicated, exposed, and then eradicated. But there is a religious slavery that knows an oppression that, despite how awful slavery is in the physical body and the mental strain, it's even, though hard to imagine, I, I guess, it's even more horrible. It is even more, here's that word I'm going to use, violent in the heart that seeks God, in the inward notions of spiritual life and health. Slavery is obviously evil when we gaze on its physical expressions. It is even more evil because it is hopeless to the earnest assessor. If I must perform to please God, the standards are too high. The demands too far. The consumption of my life too absolute for him to be pleased, for me to be tolerated. This is the battle that Martin Luther fights in his day. It's the battle that his confessor, who spent hours and hours and hours a day listening to Luther labor in the desire to be free, the desire to please God, He's wrapped in the chains of human performance and he is a tortured soul until he sees the distinction between made righteous and declared righteous. His Latin Bible was wrong and the Greek truth Truth in the Greek words sang in his soul. And he can cry with anyone else, my chains are broken. My soul set free. Galatians is a magna charta, magna carta, a great charter for Christian liberty because it helps us see and wrestle with what it means to be free. Free from the self-gradulation of human pride or the torturous despair of human failure. If we think that the gospel is about what we do or don't do, it's about what we want or don't want. We are on the path to returning to slavery. We are walking willingly into the prison of death and destruction. Christian, be free. 
be free. Because you can't make God have favor on you. Nothing you do will be enough. The second you don't, you will despair. The gospel is of grace. It is of freedom. It is for our great releasing of the burdens and slaveries of human performance, religious work. These false brothers are sowing seeds of disunity and they more than obstruct the gospel. They negate it. In other words, they have removed the central component of the true gospel. The good news. The good news. Verse 5. To these false brothers, we didn't yield in submission, not for a moment. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from generation to generation to generation, the gospel has been proclaimed and received, studied and taught and passed down. We know the gospel because of God's faithfulness in Christ to perform it, to fulfill all its obligations, and in the testimony of the church by the power of God's Holy Spirit at work in the hearts of men and women and children. They fight, they bleed, they die, just as Christ did, that you would know what peace with God looks like and where it comes from, so that you would have it, and more than have it, share it, and protect it, and pass it on. Verse six, from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, I don't care about the hierarchy of the enemy. I want to remove their propaganda. I want to protect the truth. I want to tell the truth. I want to expose their falsehood that the people of God would have certitude. God shows no partiality. You think that God shows partiality. I'm calling you on this. Are you ready? How many of you think that the greatest Christians are martyrs? How many of you think that missionaries are better Christians than you? Now, I know you're here on Sunday morning, so maybe we have to talk about Wednesday or Saturday night. But how many of you think missionaries are somehow holier? They're somehow better. How many of you think Pastor Kevin or your favorite pastor somewhere else is a better Christian than you are? How many of you think the people up here playing their musical instruments are singing with that beautiful heavenly voice, that they're better Christians than you. Your Sunday school teachers, they're better Christians than you. 
Those nursery workers, they're better Christians. The ones who serve in children's ministry or at Connect or provide snacks or bring meals, that they're just better Christians than you. Stop. Stop showing partiality. Stop thinking that somehow somebody else has a greater righteousness than you do. That somehow God is more pleased with the missionary, the counselor, the pastor than he is with you. Stop obstructing, ignoring, undermining the gospel that says our righteousness has a singularity to it. Jesus Christ is the obedient son of the covenant. Jesus Christ is the righteous son of God. And we have his righteousness. And if you don't, you do not pass through the gates of heaven. As if you could add anything to Christ in his finished work. As if you could diminish the work of Christ. Why are you righteous? Because you obeyed the law or because Jesus did? Well, if we all have Christ's righteousness, how do we show partiality? There isn't. Jews are not better than Gentiles. The Puritans are not better than you. Why do you let their prayers go unresponded to with your own? Why do you think that the hymns from 200 years ago are an expression of a righteousness you don't have? Start writing the songs of the church. Children, in here, you sometimes might hear someone say that you're the future of the church. It's nonsense. You are the church. You don't wait to be the church. You're the church. Stop showing partiality by age, by experience, one righteousness, one baptism, one spirit of the true and living God, one. And you either share in him or you have nothing. That's the gospel that is being fought. That's the gospel that's being protected and proclaimed. Do not take lightly the words of anyone who even hints at elite righteousness that there are somehow two types of Christians. There is but one. And that one, miraculous. Miraculous. Do not let disunity be sowed in your hearts. Do not hand away the central component of the true gospel, the goodness of what God has done. Jesus Christ has perfectly fulfilled the law and the prophets. You could never do either. 
Christ came to fulfill the shadows of the ceremonial law, which all pointed to him. They point to him. So listen to how Paul thinks about this. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to Paul. When he says that, he's talking about the message of truth. Verse 7, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. In verses 6 through 8, the apostles are of one mind. That's R.C. Sproul's summary thought from this whole moment. The apostles were, quote, of one mind. And that was speaking to their unity of message and purpose. This is why verse 9 is so important. This is why I take so seriously in moments of membership that I give the right hand of fellowship. It might look weird because normally I'm given five-pound chicken wings, right? Five-pound chicken wings for those of you at home. But it's the same message here, given in different contexts. It's the same mission. They're just laboring in different mission fields. Peter to the Jews and Paul to the Gentiles. Different audiences, same message, same mission. Oneness, unity. That's why they gave the right hand of fellowship. That's why we give the right hand of fellowship to the Grahams who join our church today. That Ava and Violet, Michael, Alicia, and Mike, that they receive from you the right hand of fellowship because it's the great sign of our unity. And in our unity, we rejoice with what Jesus said in John 8. Verse 32 and 36, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What freedom do you have apart from Christ? All other, quote, freedoms are slavery. You are free because the Son has set you free. You are free to worship, free to worship the true and living God. You are free to live in peace with God and with God having peace with you. And the gospel of grace sets you free to love. And in that love, experience joy beyond measure and sacrifice that leads to joy that flows from joy and returns to joy. That's why we sing rejoice. And as a preview, closing with this, Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Amen? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in you 
Because of who you are and what you've done, Lord, we thank you that the freedom we have in Christ is the truest of any kind of freeman, and it lasts eternally. Father, help us as your people testify and proclaim that you have done all that is necessary for salvation, that you give and you give abundantly beyond what we could even ask or imagine. Lord, we ask that you would protect us from all forms of false propaganda, that you would guide us and guard us, that we would never again return to the yoke of slavery, of a works righteousness, a religious righteousness that comes from anyone or anywhere that is not the finished work of Jesus Christ. Come, Jesus, make yourself known. We ask, we beg, we celebrate. In the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people agree.